Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello again. It's Susan Pinkney, your host of the Southern Bell of Beverly Hills on the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? This week's episode, Little Golden Fires Everywhere. When I thought about working on Little Fires Everywhere, the Hulu limited series that produced so many Emmy nominations, the one thing that stands out the most is the last day of shooting. I originally came on when they just needed two stand-ins for the Mia Warren character, which was played by Kerry Washington and Tiffany Boone. There was another day that they brought me on to simply be the stand-in while the Hulu photographers set up the photo shoot for Kerry Washington and Reese Witherspoon. That was like the official photos for all of the press and all of the images that you see promoting the show. So they had me and another stand-in come in to have them set up lighting and to do sample shots and all those good things so that when Carrie and Reese came in, they didn't have to stand there for what us normal folk have to wait around for. Eventually, they just started booking me every day as the main stand-in for Mia Warren, both young and old. And for the younger character, I did do a little photo doubling, including handwork. I wore the the funeral outfit. And I'm not going to give any spoilers. This show has been out since mid-March. And based on online reviews and everybody talking about it, Most people have seen it who are probably going to see it, but I'm still not going to give spoilers because for the few people who may need to hear a little bit of the backstory before they say, wait a minute, I might like that, I'm not going to ruin it for you. And let me jump out for one moment just to give you a little bit of backstory. It's based on a novel, which is why it's a limited series. And this novel is based in the 1980s. I have to pause a second. The novel may be based in the 1990s or it's a little of both because there's a lot of flashback scenes from the 90s and then they go back to where the two main ladies in the limited series, which would be Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington's characters. So they go back and they share how they became the women that they are currently. So, as you can imagine, the soundtrack for the show is ridiculous because it has music that makes you feel 80s and 90s-ish. And when I first heard of it, obviously it doesn't take you very long once you see the trailer or once you know what book the show is based on, you quickly dispel what everyone would think would be the obvious Like you say, oh, two nice actors. Oh, everyone loves Reese. Everyone loves Carrie. So this must be one of those really good, kind of cutesy, feel-good shows where everybody has a happy ending and it's just a lovely story. If you think that, 
you're wrong on so many levels. The two characters do not get along in the story. They're both very different. Carrie Washington's character is a single mother who's very mysterious, curt with everyone. She has her own moral compass of what's right and wrong. And the most important thing to her in the world is her daughter. But her parenting style may be unusual for a lot of people when you're watching it. And then there's the Elena character, which is played by Reese Witherspoon. And she's married suburban mom who has a family that is uh, picture perfect, shall we say, from the outside. And her daughter is even dating the star athlete of their school. And the star athlete happens to be black. So you say, okay, well, Elena must be open to all kinds of people and all kinds of cultures because she's allowing her teenage daughter to date a black kid. You very quickly learn in the first episode that that statement may not be true either. But it's there's so many things that make Elena's character, who has some very obvious character flaws that are magnified throughout the show, and you kind of learn and understand where these character flaws originated based on the flashbacks that they slowly reveal throughout this eight-episode series. I hope I sold it because it is really good. It's not predictable. I feel like, yeah, there may be some small moments where you can maybe guess ahead after all of the clues have been revealed to you. I didn't feel like it was predictable at all. And this is from like being there learning what was happening and piecing it all together as they're shooting. And even when I watched it for the first time on Hulu, when it was released, it felt fresh. You just have to see it on your own. Well, I'm going to go back to my favorite day on set for Little Fires Everywhere. My favorite day was the last day because something that rarely ever happens, rarely ever happens, I experienced. The day started with a 7 a.m. call time with me having to be in the heart of Hollywood at a studio called The Lot. On The Lot is Oprah's Los Angeles own offices. Holla, Oprah. I don't, there was something pretty special about going to that location. I don't know why, but I enjoyed pulling up every day and parking and seeing the own sign and then walking and having the security people recognize you because you've been going there. I wasn't there long enough to have my own badge, although a lot of the stand-ins did have their own credentials, badges, all they had to do was swipe. I had to show my driver's license because I missed that first week. So this morning, I had to be there by seven so that we could hop on a van and get some pickup shots that needed to happen on this day. So the last day of shooting was pretty much comprised of nothing but pickup shots. It's the last day you have your crew. It's the last day you have your cameras. The last day you have your actors. It's the last day you have your locations. Everything needs to be shot out on the last day. 
period. No exceptions. You have to finish shooting. So we drove to a grocery store somewhere in the valley. And this grocery store looked like it was frozen in time. It was the perfect 1980s, 90s grocery store in Ohio that you could imagine. And it really exists. They, of course, had to add some set dressing and do a little zhuzhing here and there, but it was exactly what they needed. When you watch this stuff, you'll see the grocery store where Mia is doing her shopping for her art installations. And that's the place that's in the valley that we shot on the last day. And speaking of locations, I need to point out every single scene was shot somewhere in Los Angeles or in the vicinity of Los Angeles County. And it was perfect. And what was interesting too, the house that was the Richardson house was in Hancock Park, which is near the mayor's residence. And when you see that house covered in snow, they actually used a snow machine, like the kind of snow machines that you have at ski resorts that make real snow. It's basically ice that's being shaved so finely and then misted through the air so that it falls like snow. They used an actual snow machine and made that snow. None of it was CGI. Uh, it wasn't the fake stuff. It was actual snow that they covered this house in and made it look just incredible. And that was in Hancock Park. And it was, what, early October, I'm thinking? So, you know, the, the temperatures weren't that cold to sustain it. So they had to do everything very close to shooting. So that was one thing. And then there was also the house where Mia Warren's parents live. And it looked perfectly like a, a house you would see on the East Coast. And it was in Baldwin Hills. Baldwin Hills, people call it the Black Beverly Hills. And for the snow scene there, they use very fine paper. It was, it looked and, and kind of laid like snow, um, but it was a very fine, 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 fine paper. And I still to this day don't know how they got all that paper up. No clue. But they, the first time they had a huge snow event with the whole neighborhood being covered in snow, it was paper. And then the second time they had a huge snow event with multiple houses being covered with snow, it was an actual snow machine. But anyway, going back to that last day, I arrived at the lot, got on the van to go to this grocery store in the valley where Mia was going to be doing her grocery shopping for her art installation. But I was talking to someone on the van and we looked at the sides. I saw the Mia scene and then I didn't see anything else. But I knew that she had scenes on the stage. So, but I looked at the call sheet, it ended and there's no other Mia scene. So I was a little confused, but I didn't, you know, ask any questions. And then I heard someone say, yes, there's a second crew coming later to shoot out the stage. And I realized, oh, wait a minute. So I'm on two crews, the first scene of the day on the first crew and I have scenes on the second crew later today. 
in which obviously I didn't have that second call sheet yet. So we get to the first location. We shoot all of that grocery store footage they use for her moment where she gets passionate and decides that she's going to make this art installation. It turns out to be something very significant in the show. And just as an aside, after Mia comes back from the grocery store and she mixes her supplies in the bathroom in a five-gallon bucket, on the call sheet, they had that as two separate scenes, her coming down the hallway and her mixing it in the bathroom. And I was sitting with actually the stand-in that I enjoyed working with the most. Her name is Michelle. And for some reason, I always had the giggles working with Michelle because we both found the same things to be funny. Like there was so much humor just from everyday life. And working with her, we found the humor and we laughed. And there's nothing better than having somebody that you can just, for no good reason, find a good giggle with. And so she was my favorite stand-in to work with. And good for me, she was Izzy's stand-in. Izzy had a bunch of scenes with Mia. So I worked with Michelle often because she was standing in for Izzy. I was having a conversation with Michelle and I said to her, because there's this game that you play when you're on set and you always try to guess when are you going to be wrapped. It doesn't matter if you have anything to do after work or not. It doesn't matter if you are in the best environment in the whole entire universe. There's just this subconscious game that everyone plays to try to guess when they're going to be wrapped. And so as I was talking to Michelle and I looked at the scenes that I had to shoot, And I said, oh, they'll probably shoot this together as a combo. And she said, oh. And right as I said it, I looked up. I saw Carrie Washington. I felt a little funny because I'm a stand-in on that show. I'm not a production manager on that show. I'm not, you know, an executive on that show. I was a stand-in on that show. And for the stand-in to sit and to look at the sides... And to just guess, oh, this is probably going to be shot as a combo. My reasoning for saying it was probably going to be shot as a combo is because I was familiar with how short the distance was from the hallway to the bathroom. I was familiar with the fact that there was a steady cam operator on the show. And it just seemed logical to set it up and shoot it all as one shot. I was saying it in a conversation a personal conversation to Michelle just so happens one of the executive producers, Miss Carrie Washington was walking by and heard me say it and clocked me saying it. And I was like, okay, so let me just be quiet and roll back my conversation a little bit. So after our lunch break was over and they called everybody in to block the next scene and to talk about how it was going to be lit, where the cameras were going to be, all that good stuff. Carrie said, let's shoot this as a combo. You could hear the grumblings in the room. The DP and the gaffer grumbled out loud to the executive producer, who happens to be very petite, five foot three black woman. And they basically told her, no, we're not going to shoot it as a combo. 
they said it doesn't make sense to shoot it as a combo. We're not planning to shoot it as a combo. We're not going to do it. And she paused and she smiled and she looked at them and she said, we're shooting it as a combo. Okay, thanks. And walked out. They totally didn't appreciate it. This was after she said, let's rehearse the scene. We'll rehearse it all together. Instead of rehearsing it, you know, twice, we'll rehearse it all together. She demanded on her production that they shoot it as a combo. She leaves the room. And I'm not going to say who in particular, but they were not kind. They were not kind. And they were not quiet about her saying how she wanted that to be shot. They gave their opinions and they basically had a lot of toxic masculinity, male energy, didn't appreciate her saying that that's how she wanted it shot. But they did it because they had to. They had no choice. And the whole time they kept saying, this isn't going to work. This doesn't make sense. Why are we doing it that way? And then every two minutes you'd hear, because Carrie said she wanted it that way, because Carrie said she wanted it that way. Eventually, after everything was lit, and she walked through to rehearse it one time, and it was flawless, they shot the scene. It was very quick, very easy, very beautiful, very professional, and it knocked out two scenes very quickly with one movement because they used a steady cam and they lit it all at once. After they were able to shoot it so quickly and so flawlessly and move on to the next scenes, every single person who grumbled, every single person who complained, every single person who said the word carry as if it was a bad word, Carrie said it, they all told her, oh my gosh, that was awesome. Oh, that was a great idea. I'm glad we did it that way. They all came back and ate crow and there was an unspoken look at me afterwards. And she just kind of smiled and I smiled. I will never forget that because it validated so many things about the way people operate. One, people do what they're used to doing, even if it's not the best way or the right way. If that's what they want to do, that's how they think something should be done. That's the way they're going to proceed. Furthering your education or being open to new ideas is never a bad thing. Things are now changing as with the female producers and the female energy that was on Little Fires Everywhere. Of course, because this is Hollywood and because people who are established, who are really good and talented at the work that they do, you're going to hire the best people. And sometimes those the best people who know that they are the best are not open to people telling them what to do or aren't open to trying new things or aren't open to doing things differently than the last way they did something successfully. But moving on from the grocery store scene on that very last day, we got back on the van and I said with everyone in the earshot, including Miss Shelton, I think I'm going to get golden time today. And everyone laughed. Well, golden time is like the elusive unicorn 
everyone knows someone who's had a story about a time that someone that they knew got golden time, but nobody actually really ever gets it. So what makes golden time so special is that it is called golden time because it is a 16 hour rule violation. And the penalty for violating the rule to have a background actor on set for 16 hours, and that includes lunchtime, they cannot deduct the lunchtime, is for every hour or any part thereof, they get their full day's rate. So with the overtime schedule that already exists, for SAG actors, which is a very good overtime schedule. From your first hour to your eighth hour, it doesn't matter if you're there a half hour, it doesn't matter if you're there for eight hours, you get the same rate. After eight hours, you get time and a half. After 10 hours, you get double time and so on. It is a lucrative overtime schedule anyway, but when you reach 16 hours, that's when it's really lucrative. And so you only hear about people reaching golden time when it's a period piece and they have a two hour pre-call for their period wardrobe or if it's a monster show and they have to come in for special makeup or like really extreme circumstances. And usually they still find a way to schedule it so that they're not making golden time, violating the 16 hour day. And yes, it is a violation because obviously that's that would be an abuse to have someone on set that long, that length of time every single day. So that's why they're trying to prevent it from happening. But for the background actor, it's like, heaven. So that day I had a 7am call, went back to the studio. Most of the people I worked with were wrapped, sent home. And I was there waiting for the second set of shooting on that last day. The scene that I was going to be shooting with Mia included me not only having the scene lit, because if the scene only were going to be lit, then after it was lit and ready to go, or the final turnaround of that scene was lit and ready to go, then I could be wrapped. But the scene included me also doing off-camera dialogue with Mia. So not only was I there having the scene lit with her, but I was doing the off-camera dialogue because she was on a phone call. So I had to be there until that scene was completely wrapped. That scene was the very last scene of Little Fires Everywhere, the very last scene of the last day. So every scene that they shot that day, all the little pickup scenes, I kept looking at my phone and counting the hours, how many hours left before I reached golden time. So anyway, after we arrived back at the studio, and everyone else is gone in between the two sets of crews working to shoot this last day of shooting. I am just waiting. Like, what do I do? There was a mall with a target right next to the studio. But for some reason, once I was already on the lot, I didn't want to exit the lot. 
Although obviously it's not that big of a deal just to check back in. Kind of like when you go to the airport, like once you go through security, you don't want to have to go back through security. Again, it's not that big of a deal, but you just don't want to do it. So I didn't really want to leave the lot. So while I was waiting, I decided to, of course, take a, a little lap. So during my little lap around the studio, I discovered a little cafe that felt very chic and modern. And it felt more like a place that you'd find in West Hollywood or Beverly Hills, which I guess technically makes sense. But it was this little chic place that had several different types of food, had a little coffee counter, had a little juice bar. It's just a fun little spot and definitely not a traditional place that you would see on a Hollywood lot, not like a commissary. But I, I hung out there for a little bit. Then I went back to the stage. I watched Bravo online for hours. I watched a bunch of Kardashian episodes. And finally, finally, late at night, it was time for Mia's last scene. And when I looked down, I thought, wait a minute, this is really going to happen. I am really going to get golden time. And sure enough, that night on the set of Little Fires Everywhere, last night of shooting, I had more to celebrate than just having the successful run, being able to work multiple days with a wonderful production team and having the experience of seeing Carrie coach the young girl who played Izzy, Megan Stott, and give her really good advice. And there was one scene where Megan needed to be upset and she wasn't capturing the essence of how upset she needed to be. And so right before they called action, Carrie began to say, this is your fault. You did this. And Megan ran with that. And you saw her performance transform, literally transform night and day from what she was doing before to what she needed to do in this particular scene. It was incredible to witness all of the strong women and the strong performances. And there were some really great male performances too. Joshua Jackson, who after I got over in my head of wanting to sing the theme to Dawson's Creek every time I saw him, Joshua Jackson was just perfect in everything that he did on set. It was never too much, never too little. It was just right every time he was on camera. It was nice to see Jesse Williams, who, of course, I've been watching since Grey's Anatomy, and to see Jesse Williams in the role that he was in and to see him play that. You know, there were so many wonderful male performances. Oba Baba Tunde, I know I butchered his name, but he played the dad on Half and Half. And he was just a really wonderful, nice guy, like in person, on set to everyone, every single crew member. He offered 
advice to every single crew member and every single actor. He was just that kind of person. And then I found out later that he also does that. Like that's the way that he makes earns money. He has a teaching or a, like a, a master class type thing for people in the industry. And it made sense to me. I was like, Oh, so that's why he's that way. So it was just a really good group of people all brought together to work on this transformative series and it translated it translated to what you see on screen so not only was i celebrating all of the wonderful experiences that i had from working on that transformative show i was also celebrating making my rent payment with one day's worth of work that was incredible and that is one of the many reasons that I will always remember my time on Little Fires Everywhere. So hey guys, if you enjoyed this show, you know what to do. Rate and subscribe on iTunes. You can also find us at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. You can find me, S-U-Z-Q-90210, Suzy Q90210, on Instagram and Twitter. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.